0: Hello, this is the fourth in a series of podcasts by the British Society for Hematology, exploring different haematology guidelines. My name is Dr. Graham Smith and I'm a recently retired haematologist from Leeds, where I've worked for over 25 years as a consultant with a special interest in leukemia. Most recently as lead clinician for haematology and subsequently as clinical director of oncology for the Leeds Cancer Centre. I've published widely in the field of chronic myeloid leukaemia and have been a long-standing member of the NCRI chronic myeloid leukaemia working group and recently chaired a writing group responsible for producing UK guidelines for the investigation and management of chronic myeloid leukaemia. Today I will be talking about the British Society for Haematology guideline on the diagnosis and management of chronic myeloid leukaemia. The talk will be in three parts. In the first part, I will review existing international guidelines on the investigation and management of this condition, and why, in my view, there is room for a UK-focused guideline. In the second part, I will talk about the structure of the guideline, and then finally, I will discuss in detail four of the key areas that the guideline makes recommendations for in terms of management for this disease in the UK. So reviewing existing guidelines, a number of organizations have produced guidelines for the management of chronic myeloid leukemia, notably the European Society of Medical Oncology, ESMO, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network in the US, the NCCN, and probably more, most familiar to UK, Practitioners, the European Leukemia Net or ELN guidelines. The ELN guidelines were last published in 2013, ESMO was reviewed last in 2017, and the NCCN in 2018. As far as the UK is concerned, the last guideline on CML was published in 2007. It was a very brief document and has been archived on the BSH website, i.e. not really relevant to the practice today. As regards these existing guidelines, in general, they do provide a good consensus view on diagnosis, treatment, monitoring of response, and aims of therapy. However, in general, they do not provide advice on patient factors that may influence a choice of tyrosine kinase inhibitor. They don't discuss in detail the management of side effects and of particular relevance to modern practice, they do not describe approaches to the vascular risk that patients are exposed to on some forms of TKI therapy and do not in any detail discuss the approach to stopping therapy. And finally, Special clinical scenarios are not really covered, for example, fertility and pregnancy. Moving on to the second part of this talk, the structure and focus of the UK guideline, members of the working group were keen to produce a practical guide to the investigation and management of CML for a UK audience. Over the last three years, we have critically reviewed the evidence to produce recommendations in the following areas diagnostic criteria, primary therapy, response criteria and monitoring response to therapy, management of patients who are resistant or intolerant to first-line therapy, management of patients with advanced disease, side effects, a brief review of the role of allogeneic stem cell transplantation, and then of particular relevance to today's practice, a number of recommendations for discontinuing therapy in some patients. And then finally, some advice on the complex area of CML and parenting. During the final part of this talk, we will discuss in detail some of the key recommendations from the guideline. The four areas I would like to cover are diagnostic criteria and essential investigations, primary therapy for patients in chronic phase, side effects of tyrosine kinase inhibitors and their management, and finally, the potential for discontinuing treatment in some patients. Dealing with each of these in turn, first of all, diagnostic criteria. We have recommended that a BOMA aspirate is still taken at diagnosis in CML for full karyotype analysis and morphological investigation to confirm the phase of disease we realize that the detection of additional cytogenetic abnormalities is of prognostic importance however there is no need to perform a bone marrow fine biopsy in addition it is important that the fusion type is established so that molecular monitoring can be undertaken and this is of particular importance if treatment discontinuation is to be considered Finally, in terms of prognostic scoring, we have recommended that the UTOS long-term survival score, or ELTS score, is used in preference to the SoCal score. This is because it does appear to be more discriminatory, particularly about the risk of dying from CML in patients with intermediate or high risk disease. As regards primary therapy, the majority of patients diagnosed in 2020 have a realistic prospect of a life expectancy similar to that of the normal population. For many patients, there is no reason to choose a second generation tyrosine kinase inhibitor over imatinib, which is a well-established safety profile with no life-threatening long-term side effects identified to date. Most patients are likely to die of causes other than their leukemia, and comorbidities are more predictive of death. However, there are some groups in chronic phase that might benefit from a second generation tyrosine kinase inhibitor up front. The first are patients with high or intermediate ELTS or SOCAL scores, as they have been demonstrated to have a reduction in disease progression with a first line second generation TKI. The second group are women who wish to have children where the more rapid molecular response with a second generation TKI is desirable to facilitate early treatment discontinuation. The early use of a more potent TKI should be balanced against the risk of inducing or exacerbating concomitant illnesses and in this guideline we have produced a useful table to aid the selection of TKI based on pre-existing medical conditions. In this guideline, we have emphasized the proper assessment of comorbidity and have recommended that all patients have a baseline assessment with an ECG, lipid profile, fasting glucose or HbA1c, cardiac risk assessment, and because of the risk of reactivation of hepatitis viruses, hepatitis B and C screening. Moving on to side effects of tyrosine kinase inhibitors, We know that these are common during therapy. In the guideline, we have produced a table to act as an aid memoir for the management of most of these. In general, dose reduction or treatment suspension and slow titration back to a dose which achieves an adequate molecular response is sometimes required. If this does not improve side effects, then switching to an alternative TKI may be required as there is little cross intolerance between the different types. I'd like to discuss in more detail the cardiovascular and respiratory side effects. Many CML patients are at high cardiovascular risk because of comorbidities and tyrosine kinase inhibitor therapy may increase these risks. It is our view that cardiovascular risk should be assessed and treated in all patients. Patients with previous cardiovascular events should be offered secondary prevention and all others, particularly those on tyrosine kinase inhibitors associated with an increased incidence of arterial thrombotic events, such as nilotinib and ponatinib, should have an assessment of cardiovascular risk using the Q-risk formula. Those with a 10-year risk of more than 10% should be offered tovostatin 20 milligrams daily. Aspirin should not be prescribed for primary prevention in asymptomatic patients, except those with known carotid artery stenosis. Hypertension is common, occurring in 10% of patients with some tyrosine kinase inhibitors, but the risk of life-threatening events is low, Blood pressure should be monitored before and during TKI treatment and hypertension treated in collaboration with the GP, according to current UK guidelines. As regards how often patients on TKI therapy should be screened for potential toxicity, we have reviewed the available evidence and made a recommendation for best practice for laboratory investigations and clinical assessment for the various TKIs available. Finally, I'd like to discuss the potential for discontinuing treatment in some patients. Several studies now have examined whether molecular emission can be maintained after stopping therapy in patients achieving a deep molecular response on tyrosine kinase inhibitor treatment. To date, several thousand trial patients have discontinued TKI treatment and these data show that discontinuation of therapy is feasible and safe. Predictive factors for successful treatment discontinuation are time on TKI treatment and duration of MR4. Reassuringly, all patients who lose a deep molecular response successfully reestablish this on restarting TKI therapy. Of particular importance for this guideline, in the recently published UK DESTINY study, patients were stratified between MR3 and MR4 and underwent de-escalating therapy for 12 months with half-dose TKI before withdrawing completely. These patients have shown a particularly high recurrence-free survival of 76% at 24 months for those patients in stable MR4, and the same phenomenon has been reported in another large retrospective single-centre study. These findings suggest that initial dose reduction may be important and therefore, in the absence of any reason not to, we have recommended that initial dose reduction as per the DESTINY protocol is undertaken. In practice, this would be reducing the dose of TKI by 50% for 12 months prior to discontinuation with monthly monitoring. Other recommendations that we have made regarding treatment discontinuation are as follows. Patients should be on an approved TKI therapy for at least three years and preferably five years and should not have a prior history of advanced phase disease, previous resistance to any TKI or previous detection of a bcr able kd mutation. Patients should have a confirmed expression of a typical bcr able one transcript and a sustained molecular response of at least MR4 for the last two years verified by a minimum of four consecutive, at least three months apart, RTQ-PCR results. We know that the majority of recurrences occur within six months of discontinuation, but later molecular recurrences at greater than 24 months have also been noted, emphasizing the need for ongoing frequent molecular monitoring. Therefore, within the guideline, our recommendation following discontinuation is that monitoring should be monthly for six months, six weekly from seven to 12 months, two monthly from 13 to 36 months, and then three monthly after year three. In summary, in this talk, we have reviewed existing guidelines for the diagnosis and management of CML and some of their perceived deficiencies as regards a UK audience have discussed the background to the development of a UK guideline and discussed its focus and structure, and finally discussed some of the key recommendations that the guideline has made to aid the management of the investigation and treatment of CML in the UK. In 2020, as well as the UK guideline, the European Leukemia Net will be updating their guidelines on the management of CML. Hopefully, these documents will be complementary and act as a valuable resource for clinicians managing this condition. It just remains for me to thank you for listening to this talk today and I'd like to invite you to go to the BSH website where there are a number of excellent podcasts from the BSH about various important guidelines.